we're looking at another one of the traditional Advent themes this morning, uh, the theme of love. Um, but I want to start in a little bit of an unexpected place, perhaps. Uh, some of you will know this. On November 30th, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, another iteration of the monk debates were held. Does anybody follow the monk debates at all or heard about this most recent one? So the monk debates, I believe, are put on by the Monk Foundation. Uh, they're Canadian. And uh, they happen every, I think, six months or so. Uh, and they pick up on a particularly relevant, pressing cultural issue. The Monk debate held on November 30th in downtown Toronto, Roy Thompson Hall. Uh, this was the resolution. Be it resolved, don't trust the mainstream media. Don't be worried, folks. We're not going too far down that rabbit hole, okay? Okay. <laughs> uh, but be it resolved, don't trust the mainstream media. Arguing for this were Douglas Murray and Matt Taibbi, in other words, agreeing that you cannot trust the mainstream media. Arguing against, in other words, that we sh should still trust the media, were Malcolm Gladwell, Canada's own, and uh, Michelle Goldberg, a New York Times columnist. They always pre-survey the audience at these debates, and uh, it was about 50-50, even split, uh, for and against. And then they survey at the end, did the debates change anyone's mind? And for this debate, there was the largest swing in monk debate history. At the end, when they polled the audience, 67% were in favor of the resolution. In other words, two-thirds left believing we can't trust the mainstream media. Now, I don't want to weigh into all of that right now. I simply want to point out that that is a symptom of something that's going on all over our society, all over our culture. This uh, institutional trust going down and down and down. We've seen this script play out many times before. An institution that we trust, that we believe in, perhaps that we have contributed to financially or some other way, we've participated in it in some way. Institutions like this Something hits the news, a scandal breaks, documents are leaked, something. Those not directly involved in the scandal or not too close to it distance themselves. Sometimes they jump ship, uh, they defect, right? They get out of Dodge. Those too close to the situation to do that, we see them circling the wagons, controlling the flow of information as much as possible. We hear things about non-disclosure agreements. And we've seen, as I said, we've seen this happen over and over again in all sorts of places, with governments, with uh, companies that were thought to be trusted. Think about FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried in the last couple of weeks. This, uh, this Bitcoin uh, thought to sort of be this uh, anti-hero against the corrupt banks or something, right? All of a sudden, he's on charges of fraud in, in Canada here. All of this mess with Hockey Canada in the last year or so. It happens, too, with big churches and ministries, doesn't it? Sadly. I, at one point, uh, briefly met Ravi Zacharias. And in the few minutes that we chatted, I felt like I saw what everyone else said, that he was a man uh, full of humility and wisdom. And so when you're close to things in that sort of way, and then something hits the news, it's, it's disorienting, isn't it? It's disorienting, it's... Somehow, personally, it feels almost embarrassing, right? Well, how did I, even though we only chatted for a few minutes, like, 
how was I just fooled like everybody else? We think we're good judges of character, and then these things happen, and it's just disorienting. And so it's no surprise when these things happen over and over again, once they happen to us a couple of times in particular, this trust goes down. It gets eroded until you're not sure what institutions and what leaders you can trust anymore. Now, you might well be asking yourself the question, how does this relate to this morning, Spencer? How does this relate to the passage that was read? Certainly, how does it relate to Christmas? Uh, And that's a very valid question. Before we jump into that, before we look more at our passage, I would invite us to pause, as we always do. Uh, I think this is never more important than at the Christmas season, this time where we're trying to remember something so significant for us as followers of Jesus, and yet we are so busy and preoccupied. So take a moment, take some deep breaths, consider how you're feeling, uh, then I'll pray and we'll jump into our passage. Jesus, would you, uh, would you show us your heart in a particular way this morning? We know that when we see you, we see the Father. It would be uh, foolish to think that at moments when we struggle to trust these institutions, the, the people that lead them, it would be foolish to think that we never turn those questions towards you. We do. And so the question remains, are you someone to be trusted? And would you provide us some answers to that question this morning, I pray? Would your spirit lead and guide us and counsel us as we consider? Pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I think, I really do think that our passage that Sam read for us, draws us towards these kinds of questions. I'll explain why. Let's look at the first half. So John 15, starting at verse 12, and we'll read to verse 14. This is my commandment, Jesus says, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, some context. This is what, this is part of what theologians call the upper room discourse. This final, uh, at least sort of extended time that Jesus had with his disciples prior to his crucifixion. Sitting around a table, sharing a meal, and many significant moments take place all in this uh, larger uh, experience, again, of what we call the upper room discourse. This is where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is where uh, we get communion from. Jesus institutes this, uh, this ordinance for us. So this is where this is happening, okay? So Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So let's take this verse by verse. Verse 12. This is my commandment, Jesus says. Sounds emphatic, doesn't it? And in fact, it it is emphatic in ways that we kind of miss in English. There's sort of two modifiers here in the Greek. It's the and my. 
but we just wouldn't have a way of saying that in English. This is the, my commandment, Jesus says. It is emphatic. And actually, it's not the first mention of this commandment. See, earlier in this time that Jesus spent in the upper room with his disciples, back in John 13, 34, he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Now notice Jesus doesn't give much practical instruction around this commandment, does he? What he does do is he gives his love as the example. So he doesn't tell the disciples, love one another, and here's how you're to do it. But he does say, look to my love as the template. One one commentator, Frederick Dale Bruner, goes a step further, and I like what he says. He says that not only is Jesus' love to be the template for the disciples, it's actually what enables them to love each other in the first place. It's what activates their love, what enables it. But it still draws us to the question of, okay, if they're to love one another, and it's Jesus' love is somehow the template or what allows them to do it, then what is his love like? Well, he sort of answers this question in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, for those of us who've been Christians for a long time or have spent some time in the scriptures, we've likely heard this verse before, and so the awkward reading of it, after a while, you just get used to it. But if you're new to the scriptures, this verse reads strangely, doesn't it? I like the way that the CSB translates it, that helps us process it a little better. It says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. So naturally, the disciples, remember where they are in this room with Jesus prior to his crucifixion, likely were not putting all the pieces together of what Jesus fully means here. Greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Jesus has alluded to the sufferings that he's going to undergo, but in most of those instances, the disciples kind of pushed back or were confused. Soon it would make sense, as they watched Jesus on the cross, but probably not fully just yet. And yet, I think another question was probably rolling through their minds as well when they heard these words from Jesus. He says, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. This is, one of the, this is not the first time, but, but this is one of these times where Jesus calls his disciples, not just his disciples, but his friends, or at least he seems to be. And if I'm a disciple sitting there, I'm saying, is our rabbi calling us his friends? Are we his friends? And then in four, verse 14, again, he, he addresses this sort of question. He says, you are my friends, if you do what I command you. Now again, if we've read the scriptures many times, we're used to this. If not, perhaps if this is your first time reading this passage, that if must feel massive. It's like, oh, this is, this is wonderful. Jesus is calling his disciples his friends. And then he says, you are my friends. If feels like this big condition And now, all of a sudden, I said that I think this passage draws us towards these kinds of questions of who can be trusted. I think this moment brings us there. Jesus seems, perhaps, to be putting this big old condition on his friendship. And easily, it can feel like all these other leaders that can't be trusted. Hey, keep your mouth shut, do as I say, and everything will be fine. Is that what's happening here? 
I don't think it is. I think we have to look at the second half of our passage to see why this is different. So look with me at verse 15. Jesus says, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Can God be trusted? Or is he simply another one of these leaders that we've come to expect in our world? Benevolent from afar, but just another dictator upon closer inspection. I don't believe God is like this. And I think this passage gives us three reasons why he's different. Three reasons that God, seen through the person of Jesus, is a God that we can trust. And you might be asking, why are we spending so much time on this? I thought we were talking about love this morning. It's very hard to get to the point of love if you're not sure if you can trust, isn't it? It's hard to make that jump. Can I trust you, God? I think that's an important question to answer before we talk about love. But three reasons I think that this passage says that God is a God to be trusted. Number one, he makes the first move, and we're going to look at each of these in turn. He makes the first move. Number two, he doesn't pass the buck, like we see so often. In fact, he grabs it. And number three, he shows us behind the curtain. Let's look at each of these. Number one, God makes the first move. God, through coming to earth in the person of Jesus, he made the first move. He didn't wait for something to force his hand there was no story that broke, and God thought, oh gosh, now I, I, guess I, have to, I guess I have to act here. Nothing forced his hand. He extended his hand towards us in love and grace. Think about Jesus' words in verse 16. You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Think back to verse 13, which we already read. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. There was no trial period here. Jesus laid down. He went to the cross. He would go to the cross in a few short hours, right after his disciples had turned tail and fled. They had all run away. And did Jesus rethink that proposition? You know what? They all just took off. I don't think I'm going to do this whole crucifixion thing. No. He still goes to the cross on their behalf. He makes the first move. Number two, he doesn't pass the buck. Not only does God make the first move, he actually makes all of the moves. He does all of the work. Look at verses 12 to 13 again. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. See, this example we've been using about these, these stories that break, these scandals that come out in the news. In fact, there has been a scandal unfolding for all of human history. And it's of creatures denying relationship with their creator. Pushing him away. And this scandal has massive consequences, doesn't it? Death. 
We've talked about that over the last couple of weeks as Matt helped us consider heaven, the hope of heaven. This scandal does have massive consequences and they are death. And so what does God do? As, is he like all these other leaders that as soon as something you know, breaks, hits the news, he just immediately creates as much distance as possible? There certainly is an alienation that we experience from God because of our sin. But immediately, right from back in the garden, we see that God is beginning the work. He's making plans to bring us back into relationship with him. He does the work for this, friends. It begins with Israel, the tabernacle, then the temple, but this reunion of humanity with God comes to full fruition through the person of Jesus. Not only does he make the first move, he actually does all of it. He does all the work. He doesn't pass the buck. The guilt and shame that's due us because of this scandal that we've got ourselves stuck in, he doesn't distance himself from it. He steps squarely in the middle of it and takes the guilt and shame that's due us. And thirdly, the third reason that God is different than all these leaders we've come to expect is because he shows us behind the curtain. What do I mean? You may perhaps remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz. They're in the, uh, what do we call that room? Not, not the throne room, the, uh, the, the audience chamber of the wizard. Uh, Dorothy is there with her friends. They're speaking to the wizard, and then Toto, you know, starts to pull the curtain over to the side, back a little bit. I have a picture of this moment on, uh, on the screen. And uh, the wizard says, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain, uh, right? And, and you see him twisting the knobs and doing all the things. Is God like this? Does he have these plans that are hidden from us? What does Jesus say? Consider these words again. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. Why? All that I have heard from my Father. All that the eternal Son has heard from God in heaven, from his Father, I have made known to you, he says. All that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You see, there has been this plan unfolding, being enacted behind the scenes. Peter talks about this in a letter that he writes to some Christians a number of years later. He says this, Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They wanted to understand this. They saw parts but wanted to see it clearly. But verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he just adds this at the end. Things into which angels long to look. The prophets that came before Jesus, they saw parts of this plan. They saw pieces of it. But never the whole thing. Even the angels, Peter said, have longed to see the full blueprint 
And yet when Jesus comes, he shows it all. He says, this is the plan. This is the plan that's been existence for all of human history. He invites some fishermen in to have a look. He reveals to them the heart of God. And then, an equally uh, miraculous task, he gives them the job of passing it on to others, of writing it down. And we have it today, friends. This is, we see in these pages, the heart of God for us. And in revealing his Father's heart to his disciples, Jesus totally changes the paradigm. See, it's no longer simply God in flesh there in the person of Jesus with his subjects. It's also Jesus with his friends. C.K. Barrett says this beautifully. He's talking about this moment that will come in a few short hours from when Jesus said these words. He says, The eternal divine love reached its complete and unsurpassable expression in the death of Christ, which was, at the same time, the death of a man for his friends. So can God be trusted? And when on earth am I going to talk about Christmas? To summarize, because all of this begins at Jesus' birth, doesn't it? Number one, God makes the first move. He doesn't wait for the story to break. He doesn't wait for documents to be leaked. He comes to us. Remember the words of the angel to Mary, Luke 1.35. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. He makes the first move. He doesn't pass the buck, shift the guilt away from himself. He steps squarely into it. There's no distancing himself from us. Consider the angel's words to Joseph before the birth of Jesus. Matthew 1, verses 20 and 21. As he considered these things, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Right from the get-go, friends. And finally, he shows us behind the curtain. There's no closed-door meetings. Jesus opens it up, shows us the plan, shows us the heart of his Father. And you know, even back at Jesus' birth, some people saw this, saw what was happening. Consider Simeon, Luke 2, verses 28 to 32. So he's in the temple, and he sees this baby. And here's what happens. He took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. In this baby I hold in my arms, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light, here's what he says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. 
In other words, this is, this is it. We see your heart through the person of this baby. It was, as, it was as if everything clicked for Simeon in that moment. The missing piece of the plan that God had been orchestrating for thousands of years fell into place. And here's what we realize, friends. To our surprise, when God shows us what, has, what his plan has been all along, we realize that not only does God see us as creatures to be saved, he sees us as friends to be loved. He sees us as friends to be loved. And so Jesus' command in this passage that we love one another is the product. It's not a condition. It's the product of this miraculous, unfathomable love of the God of heaven and earth making us worthy of being called his friends. It's that love taking root in us and then bursting forth. Again, Peter seemed to understand this as he wrote this letter years later to these Christians scattered throughout Asia. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. But before we're done, I just want to say this. Here's the, the, the beautiful humor in God's plan. Because this love shown to us through Jesus elevates us by showing us the heart, the plans of God, elevates us into the status of friends with God. And yet Jesus says in the same moment, this is my Up a towel and washed feet, which is the job of who? A servant. So he says, No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends, but I want you to love one another as I love you. So then you're going to step right back into that role of serving one another. Michelle Lee Barnwell picks up on this irony in uh, a book that she wrote. She says, the irony is that this reversal of traditional expectations actually leads to unity. It binds us together. Rather than stability, because this is what the sort of message that comes when these crises, when these scandals come out, right? If you care about this institution or this group, you know, you'll do what you can to help fix this, to minimize the damage, to keep things stable, or this whole thing might go away. But Barnwell says, rather than stability obtained by each part living according to its worldly status, unity is achieved by self-sacrificial behavior of the whole body, especially the higher status members. This is what life in the church is, friends. As soon as you elevated, you go and you serve. Applies to communities. This should apply to our, our life, our relationships 
at work with our neighbors. Everything we've been given is so that we can serve, so that we can love one another and love our city and our world as Jesus has loved us. And that began in Bethlehem. Let's pray together. Jesus, it's, it's truly hard to grasp that not only are you God in flesh who came to earth to save us from our sins, as you told Joseph through an angel, but you actually made human beings, us flawed creatures, who were the cause of your death. You enabled us to have, to, to call you friend. How can we ever reconcile that? I don't think that we can. And so Jesus, in the moments where we see things happening in our world, people being revealed for what people are, broken, and institutions that perhaps we wanted to trust being uh, seen as corrupt, would that fill our heart with renewed affection for you, our friend, who showed to us the heart of your Father? We love you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name. Amen.